Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the OU Iranian Studies podcast, hosted here at the Farzana Family Center for Iranian and Persian Gulf Studies at the University of Oklahoma. I'm Alexander Jabbari, and I'm the Farzana Family Assistant Professor of Persian Language and Literature here. I'm honored and very happy to have with us here today Professor Nasreen Rahimiye. She's the Howard Baskerville Professor of Humanities and of Comparative Literature at the University of California, Irvine. And I'm proud to say she was my dissertation advisor when I was at Irvine. And now I have the pleasure of welcoming her here uh, to OU. So, Professor Rahimiye, welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Alexander. I'm just um, delighted to be here and uh, to see where you're working. It's a pleasure. So you're here with us today um, at OU to talk about the revolution in Iranian women's writing. Uh, so tell us about the project. This is um, something that I started working on, not necessarily as a book project initially after the revolution, but I noticed, like all Iranian critics and writers in the field noticed, um, that there was a burgeoning of women's writing in Iran. And um, it just seemed to me, and among others, uh, very paradoxical that here we are with the formation of an Islamic Republic, with changes in laws uh, restricting women's um, appearance in public and the kinds of professions they could do and they could uh, be involved in. So it seemed bizarre. So I was curious to try to understand the roots of this. And then, of course, we've been, this is 40 years now, and I became um, increasingly more interested in the different forms and genres of writing that started to um, come out. So initially, there were the kinds of fiction that we might call magical realism, not that it's strictly the same form as everywhere, um, in the works of Ravanipur, Parsipur, and so on. And then there was gradually a return to a kind of realism, which I find really exciting. So I'm now looking at specific writers and some very prolific writers that have just started publishing recently, and their works uh, really give me lots of material to work with. And what is interesting is not that I'm reading them necessarily as uh, mirrors of society and what is happening, but the kinds of vexed issues that show up in these narratives. And the level of comfort the writers have with leaving things unresolved. And that, that to me, is... Um, quite an interesting turn, because if we had our literature, now not exclusively women's, before the revolution, that was uh, driven by a desire for political commitment, for um, being a voice of the society. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, it seems to be that perhaps there's less emphasis on the directions that, it, it, sort of the didactic elements of the earlier literature or even the desire to resolve contradictions. So do you think then that if, if, if as I'm hearing you say, committed literature has, has, or commitment has less purchase after you've had a revolution, then um, does that, that open up then um, possibilities for, for different kinds of expression? I think so. That's, I, I really, this is more of an educated guess than anything, of course. But I really do think part of it is, there are moments when I come across uh, passages in these fictional works by women where there's a direct allusion to the period of the revolution, mm. the young people's own involvement, 
And I extrapolate from that a kind of disappointment and disillusionment, um, which disillusionment may be on a social level, political level, but also a disillusionment with the way in which writing was configured, the writing of fiction and poetry. But I focus mostly on prose fiction. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that, um, well, I've read uh, uh, political scientists talk about how there is very little appetite for revolution in Iran now. So maybe that's also an element of what we see reflected in literature. Sure. Um, well, this sounds really fascinating. Uh, for anyone listening whose interest has now been piqued, you can watch Professor Rahimia's full lecture on this topic on our YouTube channel. Um, so did this project, is, it sounds very different from your, uh, your last book, um, Iranian Culture, Representation and Identity. What, did it emerge out of um, you know, a different set of, of questions? How did you go from, from one to the other? Um, that book, Iranian Culture, was really my um, need to deal with the experiences I had for eight years as the director of the Center for Iranian Studies at University of California, Irvine. I had uh, moved from, Cal- uh, from Canada to California, and so in many ways I was unprepared for the job, and I don't think I understood really well the le- different levels of society, and perhaps also Southern California being unique in terms of its Iranian community. Um, I was somewhat naive in thinking that uh, a center on Iranian culture could actually take on any particular issue. But, um, and I wanted to have diversity in our programs and move from other fields to fields. But I, then I, you know, I was struck by how there was a sense of, um, I, I, I don't want to call it denial, but something like, let's not talk about this Iran, the contemporary Iran. There was more a desire to talk about the ancient past and its reflections in the, um, on Iranian culture. So I became fascinated by that. Why this, um, well, I mean, many people have written about the fascination with the past, with the pre-Islamic past. Um, But I began to see here and there um, aspects of a, what I would call a disavowal of what contemporary Iran, or Iran, let's say, you know, the Islamic, anything after the 7th century is... There's a distancing, a desire to say, well, you know, that was a shame what happened. And if we could only recapture that beautiful ancient past. So, you know, we're acknowledging that Iran is much more complex and complicated a nation in its history, culture, everything, um, than we would like it to be. And I, I started talking to people who would come to my office with ideas for for uh, talks, presentations, and conferences, I'd say, you know, why don't we ever talk about the mess? <laughs> so the messiness I, is sort of in my own um, mind, I created this tagline of let's hang on to the messiness. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to actually drill down um, 
into works that were not just situated or created outside Iran in diaspora in, say, Southern California, but whether they talk to each other across the divide, the apparent divide between the Iranian diaspora population in, um, in the U.S., primarily, let's say, in Southern California, and then what the cultural uh, uh, creations that um, spoke or represented that particular diaspora that were emanated from Iran. So in my mind, I wanted to just create a dialogue, which to some extent I found, but not exactly as much as I would have wanted. I also wanted to, in a way, uh, create a, for myself, an understanding of what the definitions of culture were that were circulating. Uh, one of the things I was struck by um, early on in my tenure as director, that there's, we seem to really crave this um, tightly packed and um, static definitions of culture. And culture is something dynamic, constantly changing. The same way that you know when you go to when we go to Iran now, the language has shifted. Um, so that was also a problematic I was trying to grapple with in that book. Um, all along also interested in women's writing, but now I feel like that chapter is closed and I can move on with this project. Yeah, the the range that you mentioned, um, which which you cover in the book, not just of, of moving across, um, you know, cultural production in, uh, in, in Iran, in, in diaspora, but also this, this great range of uh, texts and different kinds of texts. I mean, music videos, um, I love that this is a book that is about Iranian culture and it calls itself Iranian culture and refuses the kind of given definitions of Iranian culture and says, okay, we don't have to talk about Ferdowsi. We can, we can talk about um, Pezeshkzad. Um, we, can, we can look at Max. We don't have to only talk about Kiyorostami uh, and so on. So I, I, I love this about the book. Thank you. I'm, I'm really... Um, humbled to hear that. Yes, that was also part of my what was driving this project is what what do we mean by culture? And so I, I got very accustomed to people um, coming to some of our programs and saying, oh, "This is not culture," you know. I, I really you should you know maybe we could talk to you about how you should talk about Iran and. Um, our wonderful artifacts, our beautiful uh, poetic legacy. And that's all there, too. My point is, my point was, and my interest was, but there are many other layers, okay. and there's nothing wrong, and we shouldn't feel um, in any way ashamed about elements of what might be called popular culture. But say you mentioned a film like Max was so incredibly popular. Why, we might ask, what does it say to us, to different audiences, um, say in California or elsewhere, in Iran. I actually, the first time I saw the film was in Germany. A friend of mine had come from Iran, and she had one of these VCDs, and she said, you have to see this film. I said, not now, you know, but eventually when I saw it, I thought, oh, my God, this is tremendous. This is very exciting. Yeah, it's a, it's a question of, like you said, is, is culture an artifact that we look at once in a museum or is it part of our, our lived experience you know films that people are actually watching and, and enjoying or, or books that people are actually reading and, right. and so on uh, so you mentioned in um in the kind of genesis for for that book your your move from canada to um to southern california 
and you had, I think, a very interesting um, trajectory, how you, how you wound up um, in Canada in the first place and then coming here. Could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and, and that story? Yeah, I actually, when I first left Iran, I was at the age of 16, 17, before the revolution, and I um, got one of these, I got accepted into one of these exchange programs, American Field Service. It still exists, I think. And the idea was that Iranian pupils would come to the U.S., spend a year, live with a family, and of course, you know, work on their language, finish high school in the U.S., and the counterpart was that American high school students would spend maybe a summer in Iran. So as part of that exchange, I um, went to Connecticut and lived with an American family that was just wonderful and gave me a kind of immersion that was well beyond language. And I really learned a lot, and my idea was, okay, I did my um, duty. I went and learned some English, so I wanted to be back in Iran. But my parents um, wanted me to follow exactly the same path as my older sister um, had taken. So she had decided that she would um, go to, uh, after that year, she had gone to a college, American college in Switzerland. Then she had decided she didn't want to be in the States, and she had taken um, to applying to um, Canadian colleges and universities. And because she was in Canada, they said, oh, why don't you just actually do this for a year or two? In my mind, it was always a temporary um, arrangement. Sooner or later, I would go back to Iran. And my idea was that um, I would really want to be part of my peer group in Iran. And my parents, of course, I think had some foresight, and they thought that they were actually providing us with an opportunity to, to get our education while Iran was going through a turmoil that became the revolution. So I was in Canada when the revolution happened. And um, at the point that I was choosing graduate schools, I considered coming to the U.S., but because of the hostage crisis, there was so much bad press about how Iranians were treated. And Canada provided me with this cozy, comfortable home. And so I stayed. And initially, the point of my career wasn't even focused on Persian literature, I had started reading German poetry and French poetry. At the time of the revolution, what happened was that I, w I was an undergraduate student and I was inter always interested in languages. I was studying chemistry, actually. Um, and it was really in the humanities classes, in the language classes, where the professors um, in those good old days had no more than like 15 students to focus on. And they would give me particular attention because they said, you know, our courses aren't designed for non-native speakers of English, yeah, if you need help. That became kind of an opening um, for me to become, to, to have mentors that to this day I'm grateful to and really indebted to. Because they could see, that they could sense that obviously the turmoil in Iran, the revolution and the war, um, were affecting me. Um, and so they started talking about, you know, there's a long history of Iran and Iranian culture in the European imaginary. That's how I became interested in reading Western or European poets and writers 
um, travelogues about going to Iran about much earlier periods. So I was really studying German and French, but I was at the same time those same mentors introduced me to the idea of comparative literature as a field where I could have my cake and eat it too, as it were. So that's how I proceeded to do a program, in, uh, a PhD program in comparative literature in Canada and stayed there. And I had no intention or nothing was planned in my mind that I would live in the U.S., but this was an opportunity and I'm really happy that I did have a chance to try that out. Not many people get a chance to do these things over a career. So what, what you um, left out of, of, you know, humbly left out of this, this story is how in the, in the meantime you, you built kind of uh, Iranian studies or helped build, you know, Iranian studies um, in North America and in Canada and the U.S. And you went on, at one point you were president of what's now the Association of Iranian Studies. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you've seen that field grow, where you think we are now, where we might be going? Oh, this is, a sub, this is my favorite question <laughs> of all times. Anybody asked me, I like to go on and on about it, because when I was a PhD student myself, uh, now, granted that I was also geographically removed from the centers of Iranian studies, um, and I mean, like even universities that were involved in Iranian studies, it seemed like there were so few of us. And um, over the course of my, I think, 30-some years now, I have seen such wonderful changes, wonderfully exciting to see a generation or two now of Iranian, of, I, not necessarily just Iranian students, but people who are interested in Iranian studies. And the fields have grown. Um, there are many more uh, people interested in the study of Iran, both in social sciences and humanities. And of course, I, they always Iranians have always been in the fields of engineering and sciences and medicine and so on. But to me, the excitement is that we now have, um, we can look forward to a future where we don't have to anxiously hang on to our organization and say, oh my, will it survive? Because it did take, and I'm not talking about myself, it took a lot of resolve and dedication to create that particular organization. And now I think that the fields are flourishing because everything that's encompassed um, in Iranian studies is, covers so many areas. And so this, this is a welcome change. So I want to circle back to um, something you mentioned in, a, in talking about your, your current project as, as well as your, your previous book, which is um, Contemporary Iranians um, Writing in Persian or, or People Writing in Persian in, in general. Um, can you tell us something about the, the sort of literary scene in, in Persian today? Mm. That, too, is really tremendously changed from the days when I first studied, started studying um, modern women writers, or writing in general, actually fiction. Um, there are so many talented writers now, and I find, that's not to say that Everything that appears in the literary marketplace in Iran is the same, of the same quality and value and so on. But there's a development that I found when I, um, I had not been familiar with. When I remember one summer when I was in Iran and 
um, the late uh, Karima Mami, Angolia Mami, invited me to their place and we had a conversation about um, the works that were being published and who the writers were. And I had a, they told me about how the, the tradition of having um, people read a work, manuscripts, having workshops for writers had taken off in Iran. And this, I think, has been a gift to our scene, literary scene in Iran, because there's much more um, a kind of collective participation in the creation of a literary institution, the publishing institution. I don't, I don't think that we are quite at the point of having an institution, but the fact that writers do read each other's work, comment on each other's work, and I don't mean that just at, at the level of after they're published in reviews. Um, I remember Fariba Vafi, one of the writers I really enjoy reading, talking about how she knew she wanted to write, but she didn't know how to go about it, and she had written something, so she, she was living in Tabriz at that point, and she said, I just got on board the bus and went to Tehran and knocked on so-and-so's door and I said, could you help me with this? And, you know, they sat down and together worked through this. So these are the kinds of changes that I think are just enriching our field, our you know, literary production in Iran. And there are also just diverse array of genres of writing, which I don't necessarily find myself able to keep up with. But every once in a while, I uh, make forays into, oh, what's being done in poetry, what's being done in drama, and so on. But uh, there is a genuinely uh, rich arena now for us to study and enjoy. You mentioned um, Faribol Vafi, whose, um, whose work has also been translated into English. Um, Zoya Pirzad is another you've worked on, who's now enjoying a, a great readership in English as well. Mm -hmm. Are there contemporary writers that you feel like haven't been translated, deserve to be translated, deserve an audience in English? Yeah, I mean, if I could, maybe after I retire, when I, <laughs> I would love to work with writers to translate some of the Fariba Vafi, for instance. She has some short stories that, you know, I had somehow dream about collecting in, a, in an anthology, translated anthology. Um, she's a very interesting writer, the kinds of introspection, psychological depth she brings to her writing. Um, Zoya Pirzad is really well translated. Now, a, a writer that I have recently become familiar with is Belgis Soleimani. I will talk about her a little bit uh, this afternoon. She is an amazingly prolific writer. I am just astounded um, at how much she produces. And she only started writing fiction at the age of 40. Wow. Yeah. She went to university, she studied philosophy, she did some translations. And suddenly then, you know, she decided, so her biographical data says, that she would write. And she has written so many novels and short stories. And I just really revel in her works. There, is a, um, there are moments of irreverence, there's humor, there's um, all array of social problems that Iran, you might, if you live in Iran, you would come across. Um, and reflections on Iran's uh, revolutionary past. Mm. She has a bold um, way of looking at it. And she has tackled um, unexamined areas of our recent political past. For instance, the 
arrest, the mass arrests following the revolution, the Mojahedin and their, you know, mass executions and so on. Over and over again, she comes back to these things, not in this mournful, nostalgic way, but as if trying to pry it apart and see what happened. And not to simply say, oh, this was good or bad, the revolution failed or not, but what propelled young Iranians to get involved in these movements? And how did they fare, albeit in fiction? But I love the fact that um, she keeps going back to it. And actually, I read an interview um, with her, hmm, maybe it was done a few years ago, where this reviewer, interviewer said, you know, you keep writing about that era of the revolution. Aren't you going to ever stop? And she said, this is my generation's, um, I'm going to call it trauma. I don't remember her exact words. And I'll have to deal with it until I'm ready, until I've worked through it. And so that's the kind of uh, writing she does. Um, she has short pieces, short, short fiction, vignettes almost, and then novels. So I would love to translate some of her works. I, I hope we will get to see your, your translations of, of her work. It sounds like a really rich um, potential. And you're an accomplished translator yourself. Um, you translated Tahi uh, Modarasi. Um, and in, in translating him, you've talked about what I think is originally um, his, his term, the idea of translating with an accent. Can you talk about that concept? Yeah, he, um, there was, in 19, I think, 89, I organized or co-organized the panel uh, in the Middle East Studies Association Conference on the writers, immigrant writers, because at that point, we really didn't have this uh, phenomenon of diaspora as much. And among the writers I included was Tarimo Darisi. And he gave a talk. His presentation was about writing with an accent. And he felt that, despite the fact that for years he hadn't written fiction, that he had never left it behind. And so after the revolution, when many more Iranians arrived in the U.S., and he was living in a Washington, D.C., Baltimore area, that he was hearing Persian, and he found himself waking up early and feeling compelled to go to his office and write fiction. Um, and so when I came across this fiction, it was in translation, and the translation itself was jarring. I remember reading, I was in Canada reading it and thinking, my goodness, it's almost as if I'm reading Persian. Um, so we didn't have email and such easy ways of contact, so I wrote to his publisher because I was curious. You know, could I ask him some questions? Six months later, he wrote me and, and he said, where are you? <laughs> Who are you? And I asked him if I could send some questions, and there began a friendship and a, a wonderful um, connection with a human being who not only knew a lot about Persian literature, was himself a writer, but has had these in very deep links to Iran. And the way he talked about, for him, the language that he really thinks about is Persian. He couldn't write in any other language, despite the fact that the fact that he had um, developed his career entirely in English in the U.S., he was a psychiatrist, child psychiatrist, and so I asked him about why is this translation, forgive me, so clunky? Why am I reading like 
he would say, so-and-so told him the onion and garlic of the story. And I said, but tell me nobody would understand this. And he said, because I want that writing with an accent to come through. I want readers to know that I'm working from another language. And a um, cultural reservoir that is not necessarily going to be accessible and made easily, readily um, deliverable to audiences outside uh, Iran. And so that friendship was very enriching to me, and we stayed in touch. We talked about his works. And then when he finished his, he was finishing his last novel, um, The Virgin of Solitude, he became very ill with cancer. And um, he joked about it. He was a very funny man. He joked and said, I'm not going to finish this novel because I have a feeling when I finish this, I'll die. <laughs> So he didn't get to finish the editing that he wanted to do. So after he passed away, his uh, wife, Ann Tyler, the famous uh, American writer, um, didn't contact me herself, but through her agent, because she didn't want me to feel forced into accepting, said that he had wondered if he didn't make it, and he had only managed to translate two pages or three pages, whether you would translate. Well, of course, it was. I was so honored and well, cried a river thinking, oh, my God, I can't do this. And But I had um, the opportunity also to talk to Anne about it. And after I accepted to do it, she said, now I'll talk to you. And she said, well, you know, Tari and I used to have this routine that he would give me his um, translation, and I would read it, and I would critique it, or I would give offer ideas and so on. So if you would like to be that voice and be that to be in that kind of exchange, I thought, oh, it was a, such a gift to me because I was worried about how would I approach this as much as I knew in the abstract what he would have done. Um, can I live up to that promise? So it was also, I call it my work of grieving because... Every morning I would get up and I would be back into the world of his characters in Yusuf Abad in Tehran and so on. And then I would get on the phone or I would mail things to Anne. Then we would have telephone conversations or I would visit her in Baltimore. So I feel like it was such an enormous gift Tari gave me. And I learned a lot about translation. You know, I've never, ever read a, co a text that closely. And I thought I was a close reader of text <laughs> and I teach close reading. But there is a way in which you relate to a text as a, when you're translating, you see it's as if you see the inner workings of the sentences, the language, the expressions. And um, I think I, I learned quite a bit by doing that. I don't know that I have become perfected my skills as a translator, but it certainly was helpful. I think what's what's so interesting about that um, process and about that, that idea of, of writing with an accent and then translating with an accent, um, <clears throat> you know, in this context, we're thinking about, you know, bringing Persian into English and, and leaving some of the, the traces visible. Um, but it's, it's actually very telling of how Persian itself was, was shaped by similar processes translating from French and English into Persian and leaving these kind of structures that um, that then shape, you know, how we speak Persian today, how we write Persian today. Right. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember even as a child. So I grew up on the shores of the Caspian Sea. One, one side of my family had come from Baku. So they were Azeri speakers. And um, this is a small little town, Bandar Anzali. And there were Armenians um, there. There was a small Jewish population. And then, of course, the local dialect or some linguists say uh, language, Gilaiki. And to say nothing of the fact that because of the fisheries and because of the caviar and so on, the Russians were there. So there was this um, amazing Tower of Babel (laughs) experience that I assumed was everybody's experience in Iran. As a child, I had no way of gauging that if other people were doing, were having the same experience. The first school I went to was Armenia. And it gave me a very... um, well, not as a child, but later when I could reflect on it, it gave me a sense of, my gosh, our language is made up of these Turkish words and Arabic and French and translations and so on. And that, too, is a testament to a living language, Absolutely. a language that actually constantly is speaking to the world and traversing borders. To say nothing of the diversities of Iran itself. I mean, the language is spoken within Iran. Um, so, yeah, this something we, we should always keep in mind. I, um, if I can just go back to moment to one, I was a director at the center once sure. in one of our events. Um, a gentleman asked um, when we were going to go back to the language of Ferdowsi and purify Persian of all these foreign Arabic words and so on. And I just wanted to cry, and I was so disappointed. I don't think he was prepared for my reaction. I said, you mean you would do away with Molana, Saadi, Hafez, all of that? You know, but our history didn't stop there. I mean, look at what Ferdowsi himself did. So, you know, sometimes we forget the uh, waves and continuous waves of transformations that have uh, that we have ourselves in our culture, in our language, in our heritage, and all of it is worth talking about. Absolutely, and I think we could we could keep talking about that all all day, but uh, but we'll run out of time. Um, but thank you so much for being here. This has been really fun and really interesting. Um, so uh, thank you, Professor Ahimia. Thank you very much for hosting me. And, and thanks to all of you for listening.